Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Psalter reading this morning comes from Psalm 100. Listen to God's word for us. A Psalm of Thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, verse 20, chapter 25, excuse me, verses 31 through 46. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. This is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and, and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. 
When Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, she gathered her family around her and spoke these last words, swing low, sweet chariot. When Benjamin Franklin lay dying at the age of 84, his daughter encouraged him to change his position in his bed so he could breathe more easily. Franklin's last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. And when Seamus Haney, the famous Irish poet, died a few years ago, his last words were not spoken. They were texts to his wife, Lillian, in Latin, as he was dying in the hospital. Noli temere, he texted. Do not be afraid. Today's strange and difficult story in the Gospel of Matthew is in many ways Jesus' last word to us, his followers. While he does have a bit more to say as he makes his way to the cross, this is the last time he tells us a story to teach us something. And like many of his stories, this one in particular grabs our attention with its vividness and its strangeness. It's a story about a king who gathers all the nations before him in order to place them at either his right hand or his left into eternal life or eternal fire. The Reverend Will Campbell was born and raised in the Deep South. I've talked about him before. Through a series of events in his life, he found himself, by chance and mostly, working with some of the civil rights luminaries of his time on behalf of African Americans as they struggled for equal rights. As he matured in his faith, though, Campbell had this uneasy feeling that he hated the redneck bigots who hated the blacks. He found himself feeling better about himself because he saw himself as better than them. Through a series of encounters with some unlikely people, Campbell began to see how he had played favorites and taken sides, how he had subverted the indiscriminate love of God for all people, a love without conditions, limits, or exceptions. He had subverted it into something self-serving. Acting on this conviction, Will Campbell did something extraordinary. He started sipping whiskey with members of the KKK. He did their funerals and their weddings. When they were sick, he emptied their bedpans. He even befriended the Grand Dragon of North Carolina. Not surprisingly, in a world where people see what they have trained their eyes to see, the hate mail started coming in. Campbell was stubborn, though. He held his ground. Since God didn't play favorites, Neither would he. Now, at first glance, Campbell's conviction that God doesn't play favorites seems to be undermined a bit by today's story, where Jesus paints a picture of a cosmic sorting where the faithful are separated from the unfaithful, like a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. If God doesn't play favorites, if God's love is for all people, then why would Jesus tell this particular story as his last story to us? Well, before we try to answer that question, we have to remember that whenever we encounter a really confusing and difficult story of Jesus, we, we need to put it in conversation with his other stories 
This parable of the sheep and the goats needs to be read alongside the stories Jesus tells us about the lost being found, the wayward being forgiven, and the dead being brought to life. Whenever we encounter a difficult story of Jesus, we also need to consider the context, and in this case, the audience. And this story of Jesus, like nearly all his judgment stories, is given to his followers, to the ones who've been with him and listening to him and learning from him for some time, which means this story about judgment is not a scare tactic to motivate those who don't believe in Jesus to believe in him. This story is meant to encourage the faithful, to encourage us to re-examine our lives. You may have noticed, but embedded within this story about sheep and goats, there is a list of expectations that's repeated four times in one story, twice by the Son of Man, once by the sheep, and one more time by the goats. Four times in this final story to us, Jesus reminds us what's required of us. If you see someone who's hungry, feed them. If you encounter someone who's thirsty, give them something to drink. If you meet a stranger, welcome them. If you come across someone who's naked, give them some clothes. And if someone is sick, visit and take care of them. And if someone you know is in prison, go see them. Four times, four times, in crystal clear language, Jesus teaches us what at the end of this whole thing matters to the God we worship and serve. And it's striking to me that it doesn't seem to be right theology or active participation in a faith community or how much we study the scriptures or pray. What matters to God at the end of it all is our willingness and our capacity to love. A few years ago, an interesting study came out of the journal Current Biology. The study reached the conclusion that being raised in a religious household did not, being raised in a religious household did not make kids more generous or altruistic. In fact, the opposite appears to be true. A series of experiments involving 1,170 kids, to be exact, from a variety of religious backgrounds found that non-believing kids were more likely than their religious peers to share stickers with their classmates, and the non-religious were less likely to endorse harsh punishments for people who pushed or bumped into others. When the researchers examined the three biggest groups of kids in the study, they found that the generosity scores of Christians and Muslims were basically the same, with the scores for non-religious kids 20 to 23% higher. Researchers were not sure why the more religious the family, the less altruistic the child, but I have my suspicions with all our focus on God, we can so easily look past people. We want so much to be in right relationship with our Creator, with our Father in heaven, 
that we can forget the right thing to do. As a young divinity school student, Carrie had just started interning as a chaplain at a cancer hospital when her professor asked her about her work. I talk to patients, she told him. You talk to patients, interesting. And tell me, what do, you, what do people who are sick and dying talk to the student chaplain about? Well, she responded, we mostly talk about their families. Hmm. Do you talk about God? Not usually, no. How about religion? Not so much. Do you talk to them about the meaning of their lives? Sometimes. And prayer, do you, do you lead them in prayer? Well, she hesitated, sometimes, but not always. Carrie felt derision creeping into the professor's voice. So let me get this straight. You just visit people and talk about their families. Well, they talk, she said. I, I mostly just listen. Huh. He leaned back in his chair. A week later, Carrie was taking notes in the middle of a lecture in this professor's class when he started to tell a story about a student he once met who was a chaplain intern at a local hospital. And I asked her, he said, what exactly do you do as a chaplain? And she replied, well, I talk to people about their families. He paused here for effect. And that was this student's understanding of faith. That was as deep as this person's spiritual life went talking about other people's families. The students in the class laughed at the shallowness of the silly, silly student. He went on, and I thought to myself that if I was ever sick in the hospital, if I was ever dying, the last person I would ever want to see is some Harvard Divinity School student chaplain wanting to talk to me about my family. Carrie's body went numb with shame. Two decades later, Carrie is still a hospice chaplain, and despite her professor's harsh critique, when she encounters people facing their death, she still talks with them mostly about their families. She listens to them as they recount the love they felt, the love they gave, and the love they lost. To this day, she says, she rarely talks with them specifically about God. She simply tries to love them right where they are. At the end of today's parable, there's this telling exchange between the goats and the Son of Man. Those that are put to the left into eternal punishment call the Son of Man, they call the King Lord. They know the guy. They, they, they may even love him which is why they're really confused and ask him, hey, when was it that we, we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? I mean, if we had seen you, we would have visited you and seen you and helped you. When did we not take care of you? When you did not do it to the least of these, he replies, you didn't do it unto me. This is the last story Jesus tells. And I think it's one that should make all of us, every person of faith, every disciple of Jesus, stop <laughs> quickly to re-examine our lives. A king 
returns and separates his flock into two groups based on one factor and one factor alone, their willingness and capacity to love. No other behaviors or beliefs or conditions are given any consideration in the story. In the end, it seems only love matters. As he gets ready for his upcoming death and resurrection, I think Jesus wants to make something abundantly clear to us, his followers. He wants to make sure we understand after all the teachings, all the miracles, all the lessons, love for one another, love for God, love for our neighbor, it is the defining characteristic of the faithful. In the end, what matters to God is our willingness to freely and frequently share the love that we have been given. And here's the great news. This love that we are called to share, it's not heroic or romantic or otherworldly. The love by which our lives, it seems, are measured is a love that's defined by simple acts, simple acts of kindness and compassion. In 2016, Peter DeMarco wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the hospital staff who had cared for his 34-year-old wife, Laura, who had suffered a devastating asthma attack and died after seven days in the hospital. In his letter that was later published in the New York Times, Peter described the dignity and the respect the staff gave his wife as she lay unconscious, always telling her what they were doing even when they weren't sure if she could hear them, making sure she was warm, constantly asking Peter and Laura's parents what they needed, food, water, a hot shower, a place to get some sleep. In all these ways, they were careful in their care for Laura as she lay there dying. But in all the other ways that mattered most, the hospital staff abandoned careful and chose love. One evening, they allowed Peter to usher in no less than 50 people into the ICU to say goodbye to Laura with guitar playing and dancing and opera singing. They looked the other way when Peter smuggled in Laura's beloved cat so he could lick Laura one more time on the face. But what meant the most to Peter was what two nurses did for him in the final hours of Laura's life. It had been a really long day filled with visitors, and by four o'clock, Peter was exhausted. All he wanted was some time alone to be with his wife before she died. But he was so tired, he knew he had to sleep for at least a few minutes. He asked two nurses to help him move the recliner in the room right next to the bed so he could be close to Laura, as close as he could be, while they both napped. We'll take care of it the nurses said, ushering Peter out of the room for just a few minutes. When they brought him back in, Peter saw that they had shifted Laura over to the far side of her small hospital bed, leaving just enough room for Peter to crawl in beside her one last time and sleep beside his wife for an hour without interruption. 
In his letter, Peter wrote these words. I will remember that last hour together for the rest of my life. It was a gift beyond gifts. We make faith so complicated with all the sorting and defining and categorizing. But what if, what if, let's consider for a moment, what if a life of faith is really as straightforward as this final story of Jesus makes it out to be? What if all the teachings of Jesus really could be boiled down to one? Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Amen.